Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 41, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the words should be up on the screen behind me. Uh, this will be a uh, this will be a, a one-off sermon. Uh, not beginning, not planning to begin a series on the Psalms for now. But Psalm 41 is a, is a very rich Psalm with a lot of very deep uh, theological connections to Jesus and to His work. Uh, it's a Psalm that I've had a chance to sort of just study and meditate over for a couple of years, and uh, it is just it's just a great Psalm. Of course, every, every Psalm. You could probably find a way to get to Jesus, but this is a, uh, one that's particularly on my heart and that touches, I think, each one of our hearts as well. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we will read that, read that psalm. Let's pray. <clears throat> From the, the words of the hymn that we often sing here, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. And Father, we have uh, already sung that we could never keep our own hold on you, on Christ, uh, on your word, on your gospel. And so we pray that as we come to you and come to your word, that you would come down and meet with us through your spirit. Lord, we thank you for your spirit, and your word, and we pray for them to work now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Uh, So I began my last sermon in 2 Kings a few weeks ago with a very famous saying, And another one came to mind for this sermon as well, as I was thinking about what what kind of experience does this psalm touch on in our lives? Why would David have written this in this way? And the phrase that came to mind was, no good deed goes unpunished. That, uh, I discovered, is actually a much, much 
older saying, uh, written in the 12th century by a Welshman. But that phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, touches on uh, how so frequently we can feel like our acts of kindness backfire on us with other people. Uh, And so I feel very confident in making this sort of broad sweeping statement that parents probably know this very well. Um, I, I feel like I know this very well. Something as simple as making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for my kids, and this, this has happened. I decide to cut it in half to help their little hands hold it better, and when I set it before them, it's just burst into tears because they didn't want it cut in half. They wanted it whole, and it's a tragedy. Uh... Uh, another one uh, at a previous church when I uh, at a previous church that I was at one of my jobs I, I went to go visit shut-ins and and uh, there was one particular shut-in woman who uh, you would think as as somebody going out to visit wow thank you so much for being here David I'm, I'm, I'm I appreciate so much I can't get out and see the church but I love that you're here uh, no frequently if you were to go to visit her she would chew you out or complain about the church in this way or say why aren't we doing this we should be doing more of that and just I feel like I should be praised but I'm not uh, and then here's here's another one I actually came across this one preparing for that last sermon in second Kings the story of a, a mother and a daughter who were enslaved on an island off the coast of Africa and the mother for a long, long time, had saved up enough money and managed uh, to save up enough to be able to purchase some freedom, and she purchased it for her daughter. And so her daughter went free and continued to, to live in the house, and so soon thereafter, the mother came in one day to the living room and, and sat down next to her daughter on the couch, and the daughter was indignant. How dare you, a slave woman, sit next to me, a free woman? Just incredible. No good deed goes unpunished. And so on one level, you might say that Psalm 41 sort of targets that very cynical, doubtful, almost inclination in all of our hearts. It's something we often joke about. Um, uh, You can joke about it a lot, but the more you joke about it, don't you find that that belief actually kind of starts to take hold of your heart and your mind? You actually do kind of start to think that it's true. This is a psalm directed at people who who really seem to be doing everything right, but who are still met with misery in return. And so we're going to see this psalm through David's own personal experience, and he's going to wrestle with whether or not that's true. Is he going to fall prey to that very worldly catchphrase, or will he stay true to what is written in God's word? So positively speaking, and this is why we read the Beatitudes just a moment ago, this psalm, in one sense, is very much an Old Testament sort of version of, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And you can kind of put that another way, like this. Those who do show mercy can always count on mercy from God. That's what this psalm tells us. So we're going to see this kind of play out in the psalm in three ways. First, number one, we're going to see the rule. Number two, we're going to see the testing. And number three, we're going to see the vindication. So let's start out. In verses one through three, we see the rule. 
So verse 1 is something like a, a beatitude, right? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. A blessing that is true for all of God's people. And right off the bat, we have to notice that for as, as much as this psalm kind of later on uh, David is going to speak in the, in the first person, and he's going to talk about his specific experience. These first three verses are not exactly about David's experience. They're, they're general. They're for everybody. They're a rule for all believers. So before he gets into the nitty-gritty of what happened to him, he's going to teach us the lesson we're supposed to take away. Uh, it's, it's not unlike... Sometimes you have to make a phone call to mom or dad or a spouse, and you, off, and you start out that phone call with, everything's okay, but, or everybody's safe, but, I've had to make a couple of those phone calls. Every, here's the lesson up front you need to learn. Everything's going to be okay. Learn this about God now, but, you know, something else is coming. And you've got to learn it first. There's really no suspense here with what David is trying to teach everybody. So very loudly and clearly, David is saying that the Lord is a deliverer for God's people. And do you notice, even just as you, if you have your Bible open still, uh, scan through verses 1 through 3, that there's a lot of different types of delivering that the Lord does. So in the in, uh, second half of verse 1, the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. It's just kind of a generic sort of affliction and trouble and difficulty. And the word deliver has just an awesome sort of connotation of sort of slipping through the enemy line. You just get evacuated in time. Or verse 2, the Lord is more like a, a defender. He's a fortress. He's a wall that keeps out the enemies while you can sleep safe at night. Verse 3, the Lord is, is compared to very much sort of like a, a, a bedside nurse and an attendant while you lay in your sickbed. There's all these different ways that God comes to help his people and deliver them. And the point that David is trying to make is this is not a God who just sort of watches idly as you go through trials. He doesn't stand back and sort of watch you flailing around, drowning and gasping for breath, not doing anything. He doesn't let us sort of wallow in our messes for a while to see if we'll get out, and then maybe if we can't, he'll come to our rescue. He's not a God who takes care of the big stuff like cancer or a pandemic, but when it comes to a friend who's maybe saying some rude things about you, well, you can probably figure that out on your, on your own. You don't need me. That's not what God is like. He's not passive. He's not uncaring. He's not callous or aloof, hesitating, suspicious, detached, or indifferent. God is always active, always concerned, always helping, always loving, always powerful, always righteous, and he is a delivering God for his people. It is an awesome blessing for God's people to have. I hope we remember that. Now, not quite as loudly, but definitely as clearly, is this. Who gets to be blessed? In verse 1, it's the one who considers the poor. 
Now, that, that, that's really sort of a, a loaded phrase right there that you could just say so much about. Now, it could mean something like poor as opposed to rich, but this is also a word that just gets used for, for any kind of person sort of on the lower end of the social scale. Those who would be considered most vulnerable, most easily taken advantage of, the kind of people who don't have a safety net, really just a synonym of, of weak or helpless. Now, I imagine maybe when you think about who that poor person is, somebody might come to mind for you. Whether it's somebody you know personally, maybe it's, maybe it's a homeless person on the streets. And the question is really, what is your reaction to that person? What does it mean to consider them? What does it mean to be merciful to that kind of person? Well, a considering kind of person or a merciful person is not the kind of person who sort of does nice things now and then uh, and is able to kind of check it off their list and say, I was merciful today, great, I'm done. Uh, This is not the kind of person who just sort of strolls by somebody on the side of the road with, uh, with a sign out and give them a dollar and say, all right, well, let me just get this man out of my face and get him away. No, according to, according to a few different people, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for one, a, a considering person or a merciful person is somebody who sees the miserable condition that someone is in, either because of sin or their circumstances. They both they feel a sense of pity and they feel a desire to relieve that suffering. They, put it another way, a, a considering person or a merciful person both feels kindly and acts kindly towards somebody in need. The considering person or the merciful person selflessly loves and helps people who can't ever pay you back. Somebody who can't ever reward you for what you've done. So I wonder if it'd be a good application to take away from here to walk away and think, boy, does that describe me? Does that describe the kind of person I am? Uh, I, I think I would have to be honest and say that is definitely not me 100% of the time. It's a much, much lower percentage than that. Um, but it's hard. It's a, it's, it's a high bar that God calls us to. But this is the kind of life he wants us to lead, to be somebody like the Good Samaritan who sees really the enemy on the side of the road, feels pity, and spends money to go and help them. Or like the father of the prodigal son, the son who wants his, wishes his father dead, takes his inheritance, goes away, blows all the money, comes home ragged, and the father just opens his arms and welcomes him back. Now, why is this so important for us to remember and to do? Uh, because that is exactly what God himself is doing in these verses for his people, isn't it? All of these different ways that God delivers, we can't pay him back. We can't, we can't owe him for what he's done for us. And ultimately, this is what God does for us in the gospel as well. All right, so you could... You can put Jesus into this psalm and say Jesus is the blessed man who considers the poor. Jesus is the ultimate blessed man who takes pity on those who could never repay him and thinks and plans how to do good to them and actually comes down from heaven 
to rescue us and lift us out of our estate of misery. We, we of all people should understand, shouldn't we, what, what it means to be destitute and what it means to be rescued from the depths of woe. God has done that for us in Jesus. And so his blood is, is, is meant to sort of course through our veins as well. We're meant to be those kind of people. Um, now, now, in a sense, that could really sort of be the whole sermon right there in a nutshell. But that is very clearly not the whole experience of our human life. Uh, and so what happens when we do do all of that? Maybe you did think, yeah, you know, I, I would say with a clean conscience, I am pretty merciful. I do think I, I help people. But what happens when people still make our lives miserable? Well, we need to keep this lesson of God's mercy in our minds, again, first. We need to learn it first before we go through that darkness because it's a lot harder to remember in the dark. It's hard to be taught it in the dark. So, secondly, picking up at verse 4, all the way through verse 10, that rule is tested. There's, there's sort of a testing here. So now in verse 4, we turn to David's own personal experience. So you notice all of the, the pronouns, if you remember from your English, verses 1 through 3 have all been third person about other people. And now he's shifted to the first person. I said, be gracious to me, heal me, I have sinned, things like that. So what are the depths of the misery to which David has sunk? What's happening to him? Well, it, it almost sort of looks like from, from something like verse 3 or verse, verses 5, 6, 7, Eight, almost, if you just sort of scan them, perhaps there's some sort of sickness going on. There may be some hints at that. Maybe David is, is, is on his sickbed, but David doesn't really come right out and say that. I think there's also good reason to think that, that all this sort of sickness, metaphor, sickness stuff is, is a metaphor. But you can tell, can't you, that the big thing he is lamenting is not the circumstance. The big thing he is lamenting is the people, isn't it? He's lamenting his enemies who are making his life a living hell. And if you just, again, just sort of scan through and read some of these things, his enemies are malicious. They wish that he was dead. They're already, in a sense, planning his funeral. They want him to be forgotten. They mock him as he suffers. Verse 6, it almost seems like they come to visit him. And they speak very sweetly when they visit him, but then when they leave the room, uh, they insult him and they mock him and they proclaim what a terrible person he is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote about those verses that it's like a fox coming to visit a hen all the while licking his lips. Verse 8 is also very, very interesting. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. A deadly thing is, is just sort of a, a fascinating little phrase there. It's, it's literally a thing of Belial, which if you remember from back in 2 Corinthians 6, Belial is sort of a synonym for Satan in the New Testament. 
So maybe almost, almost as if they are saying this satanic, ungodly, accursed thing is being poured out on David and he deserves it. He deserves every second of it. They're taunting him, preying on even sort of maybe a guilty conscience if you look back up at verse 4. Maybe David's even starting to think this is right. But the worst of all comes in verse 9. Almost as David is describing this person, he's building the tension. My close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. One of David's closest friends, who sat around the dinner table with him, has deceived him and turned on him. That phrase there, lifted his heel against me, is sort of a metaphor for that sort of sneaky, sort of underhanded behavior. Somebody's turned on him. So we can't know for sure, but a lot of people, including myself, think that this is a psalm written around the time or after Absalom's rebellion against David. If you remember that story, Absalom, David's own son, who lied to the people in the city, 2 Samuel says he stole their hearts away, uh, begins an all-out revolt and marches on the palace, and David has to flee. And while he's fleeing the city for his life, uh, a man named Shimei comes out and starts cursing David and saying, you deserve this. You deserve this for what you did to the house of Saul. Now somebody else is finally going to be king. And really, worst of all, Second Samuel very pointedly uh, comments on David's closest counselor named Ahithophel leaving, leaving his side and going to be with Absalom instead. Ahithophel, who, 2 Samuel again says, that his word was as if one consulted the very word of God. This is a tough person to lose. Uh, there's another psalm as well that I think touches on this instance, Psalm 55, where David goes into more detail, and he even describes it as, we used to walk in the temple together. We used to walk through the courts we used to take sweet counsel together. We sang to the Lord together. We prayed together. And now you want me dead, and you're with my enemy. And it's not too hard to find a really a, a modern-day sort of scenario like this. Probably, maybe not as severe as David went through, but, but maybe you have something very similar to David. But we've all been a victim of betrayal at some point, haven't we? A coworker going behind your back to throw you under the bus at work. Maybe finding out a friend from church has been saying just really awful things about you behind your back. Or maybe when you and, you and a friend talk about something together and you're on the same page and you agree 100% and then they go out from there and they talk to other people and then make a complete 180 on everything. And now they're against you. If you live long enough, all of us are going to learn what this betrayal is like. But the question really is, what do we do when that darkness closes in? What does David do when that darkness closes in? When he's lost all of his friends, when he's been betrayed, he's been kicked out of the palace, God's promises seem to be null and void, 
Well, this is why it's important to learn the lesson first from verses 1 through 3. Because now David has something to go on. He's got promises to go on. He's got something he can do. So David does not go the very sinful, reactionary, human route uh, that some of us, and myself included, would like to go down sometimes. He doesn't go scorched earth. He doesn't kind of put aside all that mercy stuff and decide, I think I need to knock down the other guy a peg or two. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. It's actually just the opposite. So what does David do in that moment when all these people are out to get him? All we have is really verses 4 and 10. And what is he doing? He's praying. He's doing the exact opposite of taking everything into his own hands and getting vengeance, and he's giving it all over to God. He says, I know exactly what you are like, God. I know who you are. Now please take this. Please help me. Please deliver me. He reacts very much like Jesus would and did. So, Psalm 41 is actually quoted one time in the New Testament. It's verse 9. And I wonder if just from that hint you can kind of figure out where it's quoted. In John chapter 13, sitting around the the Last Supper dinner table and speaking of Judas, he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus tells us that this psalm is very much what he is going through in that week and in those last few days of his life. And because of that, we get to look to Jesus as a model and as a savior from these things. Jesus is the ultimate sufferer who endured all the afflictions of this life and was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin, He is the one whose suffering was compounded by the ultimate scheming and betrayal and actual murder. All of the religious elites conspired against him. The crowds turned against him. Judas betrayed him, and his disciples abandoned him. And he is the one that though he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to his faithful father. Who does all things well. And he is the great high priest who sympathizes with us. He is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, even when we are not faithful to him. I don't know if you think about that often. When you go through betrayal or rejection, that Jesus felt the same thing. Jesus knows what it's like to have his 12 closest friends, not just one, but 12. Not a coworker that you just kind of inhabit an office space with, but the people that walked around with him for three years all left him. He knows what it's like. He very much knows what it's like to be alone. And so just compare for a moment verses 4 and 9 together. This is fascinating. Because lest you ever doubt God's goodness and God's mercy. If you look at verse 4, 
Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. In verse 9, my close friend has lifted his heel against me. Uh, Derek Kidner, one commentator, makes this poignant observation that David will get more mercy from God whom he has wronged than from the friend he has helped. And if that just doesn't say everything you need to know about God, I don't know what else does. He is the faithful one who is still there for help when all others are not. So in David's life, that that rule gets tested. It gets tested very hard. So we've seen the rule. We've seen the testing. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the vindication. Verses 11, 12, and 13. Um, Now you have to keep in mind, all all of this psalm is, is... being written in the past tense. This is something that's already happened, not necessarily in the midst of it. But as the story of David and Ahithophel has a happy ending, which you should know if you don't, Ahithophel, uh, his life ends, Absalom is killed, David sits on the throne again, and his lineage and royal descendants keep the throne. It has a happy ending, and so does this psalm. So whatever is going on with David... Notice all these things that he says uh, in triumph and in victory. Second half of verse 11, my enemy will not shout and triumph over me. His enemies, he praises God, has not won. Then verse 12, this is an interesting phrase as well. You've upheld me because of my integrity. Now I take that to mean that David understands at the end of this nightmare that he, he still has a clean conscience at the end of the day. He's kept his integrity despite the treachery. Now, by no means is David a perfect person. And again, he, he's alluded to that in verse 4 already. But probably even in verse 4, he's not thinking of something specific he sinned against God, just in general. I know I'm not perfect. I know I may have done something against you. But at the end of the day, he is a man who constantly repents He constantly learns to hate his sin and turn away from it, and he strives hard to live according to God's word, even when something like this happens to him. He doesn't abandon those those morals or those virtues or however you want to put it when the going gets tough. And so he's able to step out on the other side of this situation with a clean conscience and praising God. Most importantly, though, it's been noted. Again, Derek, Derek Kidner, the commentator, says the chief ingredient of his relief is renewed fellowship with God. And I wonder if you caught that in both those verses, 11 and 12, the parts I didn't read. I know that you delight in me. Verse 12, you've set me in your presence forever. David knows that he he is back in God's good graces again. Or maybe more accurate to say he never really did leave God's graces. God was loving him and keeping him all along. And, and, And deep down, I think that's something a lot of us fear, whether or not we admit it when we go through things like David went through. Has God left me? Where is he? Why? Why has he turned his face away? Why is the enemy winning? And just like those other previous sections, we see Jesus' own experience in these verses as well. 
Jesus is the ultimate victor, who at the end of the day was vindicated when he was raised to life again, who was welcomed back into the Father's presence after the Father had actually turned his face away from him on the cross. His enemies looked like they had shouted in triumph over him, but they were silenced three days later. And his enemies never shout in triumph over him ever again. And his victory is our victory. He has ensured that sin and death and hell and enemies are all defeated and that we do get to be in God's presence forever. So it might be that we get to the end of the psalm and you ask the question, okay, David had a happy ending, but why should I think that that will happen with me? Why should I think my life will be any different? Wasn't that just David? Well, the answer is the Sunday school answer of Jesus. Jesus is that link between David and us. He's the link. He underwent the treachery of this psalm himself and came out of it victorious. And because of that, he's secured for each one of his children that same victory. He secured for each one of us that same mercy and those same promises. And so, to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 to close, speaking of the victory, Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, where do we go from here? My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for Jesus Christ and the promises he secured for us. We pray that you would help us as we, as we go through that very long middle section of that psalm in our lives, that you would help us to understand the, the height and the depth of your plans for us, We pray also that you would help us to see the length and the breadth of your love for us. And we ask that by your grace, you would help us to stand, help us to walk forward, not in fear, but always abounding in good work and always trusting in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.